Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Michael Marino about his article, Machine Learning of Biomarkers in Clinical Observation to Predict Eosinophilic Chronic Rhinosinusitis, a pilot study. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. At Fiagon, we understand running an ENT practice safely during the COVID era can be challenging. To aid in safety measures, we recently introduced sterile, single-use navigated instruments for sinus surgery. These new tip-tracked instruments do not require cleaning or sterile processing and are ready to be used immediately in surgery. They also increase safety by eliminating the potential for contamination or infection. For a free sample, please contact Fiagon Customer Service at 512-383-8580 or visit our website at www.fiagon.com and select Request Your Free Sample. We invite you to check our website for future updates on groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm the guest host today, Dr. Amber Luong, from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas at Houston. I've invited Dr. Michael Marino from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona to discuss his recent paper entitled, Machine Learning of Biomarkers and Clinical Observation to Predict Eosinophilic Chronic Rhinosinusitis, a pilot study. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for your time today. I hope you're doing well, given everything going on these days. So first, congratulations on this manuscript. Thank you, Hammer, and thank you for having me on the podcast and giving us an opportunity and um, the rest of our, our team here in Arizona to talk about this paper. Absolutely. Before we get into the specifics of your study, I think it's important that we understand, like, what exactly is machine learning? Can you describe it for us, and, and has it been used before your study in otorhinolaryngology? I think it's a it's a broad term, or, or really the, the even broader term is artificial intelligence, of which machine learning is a, is a subset, uh, where we're using computer algorithms to look at, at data sets and either to find structure in the data that may not be apparent to us as humans, uh, and also to look at training sets of data to see if we can make predictions from certain inputs about future outputs or other outputs from, from the training uh, data. Uh, and that's what we mean by machine learning here. I think there's lots of ways to apply that. There are different algorithms. I think we'll probably touch on the different types of algorithms and how that is encompassed by machine learning uh, in this application. You use the word like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and there's a lot of been like that term being used even in the in the common like lay papers or lay outlets where they talk about, is there like a common utilization of machine learning that maybe we can understand? For example, I, and I've heard this, like, you know, when we go onto Netflix, right, and for some reason they're able to suggest movies that we would like. Is that based on machine learning? Is that what we're talking about here? Are there these common applications of of machine learning that we can kind of understand? So I think that's a great example, and that's, that's actually a, a, a well-known specific subtype, which is a recommender system. It, it looks at you know, what, what movies you may have watched, and it sort of speculates on what you may like from other users and, and what they watch next. And that's exactly what we're talking about. And, and probably an even simpler example that I think most of us are familiar with are spam filters on email. The filter looks at an incoming email, and it, it knows from previous experience that this is not a real email. This, this should go in the spam folder. As the user kind of trains,
explains it or says yes or no, those are right recommendations, the algorithm is able to, so to speak, learn about what might be an unwanted email. And you sort of alluded to it a little bit in your paper, but has it been successfully used in other fields of otorhinolaryngology? And if so, where? It's definitely been used to, to some extent, certainly been written about specifically in rhinology. Dr. Chowdhury's group talks about using uh, machine learning inputs to see what inflammatory factors were going on in, in tissue samples in kind of a very similar approach. And uh, even my, my partner, Dr. Lal, has, has used an unsupervised approach to machine learning to look for structure and SNOT scores for patients without polyps and see how these patients cluster. And those those are all really machine learning applications. Uh, I think we're probably at the beginning of this being used in routine clinical practice, but these have been some early efforts, and, and now I think the focus will be on how do we translate this into supporting decision-making for clinicians. Got it. So let's get to your study specifically. So I understand that you aim to use machine learning to identify eosinophilic chronic sinusitis, right? I, I think by, defined by a certain uh, tissue eosinophil level cutoff. I believe that was 10 high-power fields. Did I understand that correctly? So that's right, yeah. So we use okay. 10 per high-power field as a, as a cutoff based on other publications that use that. I, that that's probably a little bit mobile, but that's part of how our reporting is done. It's been published elsewhere, so that was the cutoff, correct? Got it. And what in your three input variables, can you go into those a little bit more in detail? The first one is actually just the, the clinician's initial impression on whether this is a polyp patient or not. We always note that on our first visit, that was one input. Did the clinician on these endoscopies think there were polyps or not? Was this a, a with polyp or not with or without polyp patient? So that was one input. The other input was the peripheral absolute eosinophil count in the serum. Um, so all of our patients have CBC with differential, so we have that information available to us, the, the absolute eosinophil count. And that one has been described in, in other publications, quite a bit from Richard Harvey's group, about how that can be a, a biomarker for tissue eosinophilia. The last input we started looking at was uh, urinary leukotriene E4 levels, which the broader Mayo group has, has previously used as a biomarker for aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, and in this case, kind of looked and saw if this was also predictive of, of tissue eosinophilia. So those were the three separate inputs, and the, the common output was, are the tissue eosinophils above or below 10 per high power field? So, you know, at least for me, I sometimes get multiple CBC with this. What point relative to your tissue, which is the output or the the time of surgery, at what point did you get these variables? Was it always a certain, like, okay, it's always two weeks before surgery? Or at at Mayo, do you guys have a, a common workflow or time frame in which these urinary LT4 levels are obtained relative to your tissue? The eosinophil counts are almost certainly within the four weeks prior to surgery and probably closer to one to two weeks prior because those are, those are always ordered as part of the preoperative pathway. The urinary leukotriene levels are a little bit more variable because, uh, honestly, before this, it was not part of the standard workup uh, for patients. So these were patients who had preoperative levels, but which which are somewhat variable in their time course relative to surgery. But they were always before surgery? Yes. 
And do you know what the time frame variability was in terms of obtaining that particular level relative to surgery? Is it like it varied between one week to six months or even greater? So I don't recall exactly the differences. I, I doubt there was anybody beyond six months, but that was. But I, I don't know it was, that it was clustered uh, quite as uniformly as the peripherally eosinophil counts. Got it. And then associated with this, you mentioned the active medications that were taken by the patient at the time that the laboratory collections were recorded. How was that taken into consideration in the analysis? I didn't see anywhere about you mentioning systemic steroids. Were these patients not on any systemic steroids at the time of these laboratory assessments and at the time of surgery? Those were a little bit simpler to see with some reliability whether or not there was an active prescription at the time of the lab draw, and that's how that was decided on. Steroids, I think that this is definitely a limitation of what we were able to do in in a retrospective manner. It became very difficult to reliably know what steroid course was correlated with lab draws prior. I would say as a a general rule, our patients are not on steroids in the immediate preoperative period. So probably most or all of the peripheral eosinophil accounts were not, patients were not on systemic steroids. Um, I think that became a little bit harder to track down for the urinary leukotriene levels. I see. Okay. And but did you, and then you collected other like medications that they were on leukotriene receptor antagonists, I think Zilutin, monoclonal antibodies. How did you take that information that was collected? How did, how did that play into your analysis, if at all? So what we did is we looked at the, the, the training and test groups and sought to see if those, if those medications were equally distributed across the, the training data groups and the, the test data groups to see, see if the model could make accurate predictions regardless of, of those medications having been known to be prescribed or not, as the case were. And those were, for most instances, there was no differences between the training and, and test data groups as far as medications went. Okay, I get it. Let's get into the deeper dive, and excuse me if some of my questions are a little naive. So can you explain to us the two machine learning models that you used in layman's terms? Specifically, I guess, you know, because one of them seemed to make sense. It was just logistic regression analysis. And the other one, which I'm not as familiar with, and I'm hoping that you can help us, you know, help talk us through all of that, is the artificial neural network. I guess maybe the best way is to sort of help describe figure two and understanding that. As you mentioned, the, the, the first model was just to use a logistic regression, which takes the training data and it, it builds a model according to those those parameters, and then we apply that to the test data and see what the predictions are and how sensitive and specific and accurate those predictions are. An artificial network is a little bit different in that it, it takes the input data and it runs it through different nodes where it develops a function basically much like a, a neuron would, and that's where the, the name comes from, about whether or not this input data uh, from the experience should fire the neuron. And that's kind of what a sigmoid activation function is. It, it says, does this meet a threshold at which are the experience of the, the training data is that this will uh, result in a positive outcome? That can be run in, in much more complex forms. This was a very simple model, actually. It had a, a single layer on which to make decisions. Uh, these la- there can be multiple layers in which the, the data is looked at by the computer algorithms many times over, over to basically, quote, learn from it about what the 
outputs should be or what, they, what the, the model is going to predict them to be. So when you're saying like the learning, if, if it was going back to your figure two, if it was actually truly learning or a more complex model, you might have some sort of cycle where it would go to another layer of node and then cycle back and vice versa until it came to something. Is that how to understand that learning process? I would say that that's probably a relatively simple explanation of, of what is a complex process, but that's okay. basically how it works. And um, there are multiple parameters to, to key in, and one is called the learning rate, so the, the computer will decide at what increment it should, should retest the model. There are the, the reason why it can't be sort of infinitesimally small is that it, it uses computing resources at some point, so there has to be some balance between getting good learning from the model, but also something that a computer can realistically process through. So you bring up a good point. Do you need a special computer with a certain type of software or memory to be able to do these types of ANN? So I think for a simple model like this one, most desktop computers these days, probably any iPhone could run a simple model okay. like this one. The software, I think there are multiple machine learning software packages now, and some of them are freely available. We we use something called Jump Pro, which is used in our institution and, and for which machine learning models are built into the statistical software package. So that's what we use, and that, that's distributed by SAS. But there's there's lots of different software available, and some of it is actually freely available now. Interesting. Okay. Going into a little bit more, so I understand the random training data set and then follow it up with the test data set. But then you guys also did a Surgeon 1 training and a Surgeon 2 test. Why did you do those two different, that, that particular database? And what was your hypothesis in doing so that would be different than, you know, a random training, random test data set? So a, a random test data set would look at the data at whole and, and really without any bias would select whatever percentage of patients or, you know, in this case data on which to build a model and then use another set to, to test it. And, and I think that that's a pretty standard approach, so we certainly wanted to do to do that. What I thought was unique about this is that we had an inherent bias in our data in that three-quarters of the patients had been under the care of one surgeon and, and another quarter had been under the care of a different surgeon. And we wanted to see if the model could basically overcome maybe what is an inherent bias about how patients were, or how lab studies were ordered, how patients were decided to go to, to surgery, and, and to see if that had any influence on outcomes. So I actually thought that that was pretty fortuitous that we were able to look at it that way within mm -hmm. our own data set. And really the extension for that going forward would be is, you know, what does this data look like at other institutions? Are we able to overcome and make accurate predictions despite what may be some inherent selection biases in the input data? And so did it did it overcome that potential bias? So our, our models had very similar or, or no different accuracy and sensitivity and specificity uh, between either random data sets or within a surgeon-specific data set where there may be some in, inherent biases in how patients were selected. Okay, so yeah, I see you're on your table two sensitivity and specificities were within your confidence intervals for both the random data set and surgeon-specific data set, I guess to your point that they, they were very similar. So what is your some of your key take-home results or messages from this pilot study? So I think that the first one, which is a little bit separate even from machine learning, is uh, was looking at was 
urinary leukotriene levels or LT4 levels a usable biomarker for tissue eosinophilia. Mm-hmm. And that was probably a starting point for this. And, you know, we found that we get area under the curves, which are fair. They're reasonable. We were able to make reasonable predictions, but, but really not better than that which uh, peripheral eosinophil counts give us. So we thought that that was something new, that it was a, a potentially useful biomarker, but, but not necessarily better than other biomarkers that I've previously described. When used alone. When used alone, correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's one take home. Right, and then and then that leads to the next question is about how do we how do we do better? We have now maybe two or three potential mm-hmm. biomarkers. Is there some way to put them together to get a more accurate prediction? I think intuitively that made sense to us. We kind of went to simple kind of Boolean operators. If you know this level is above that and this other level is above that, does that give us an accurate prediction? And we found that wasn't quite satisfactory because mm-hmm. one of the things we didn't include in here, I think for the sake of brevity a little bit, is we, we started going through decision tree models, and it became obvious that the computer was making more complex decisions than that. Graphically, there were kind of many layers to the decision modeling, okay. um, depending on different levels. Uh, so that's when we really started thinking about probably we need some computer assistance in making the best predictions from the from the input data. Got it. Now, I'm not sure if that's what you were sort of alluding to, but do you think that, I guess there's, I have two questions. You, you mentioned here that this is sort of a, a structured machine learning model. And then if I understand machine learning, there's an unstructured model where you just sort of throw at all the data that you have and see if the computer comes up with its own tree or network that helps it pick out, you know, eosinophilic CRS, for example. Is that another – have you guys looked into that and whether or not that might be even better than the structured model? Yeah, I, I think they have a little bit different aims. So in, in supervised learning, we, we actually – Supervised, there you uh, go. We, we actually we, – we have an outcome that we want to know something about. So in this case, we think, and I, I think that this has been something that, that we talk about, that tissue eosinophil count is important, and we would like to know it perhaps before we – do a surgery or do a biopsy of some kind, and is there some way we can predict that? And so that that really lends itself to a, a supervised model, and that that's like you you were talking about before, recommender systems for for Netflix. They kind of all follow that pattern because we want the algorithm to make some prediction that is important to us. An unsupervised approach, I think, is a little bit different and has a little bit different goal. It, its goal is to find structure in the data that may not be apparent to us without any sort of preconceived notion about what the outcome should even be. You know, that's something definitely we're interested in, but I I think it it, it addresses a different question in a lot of ways. Got it. And then you've got some pretty reasonable sensitivity and specificity with just those three inputs. Have you considered adding more inputs, and do you suspect that that would maybe even improve these parameters of sensitivity and specificity? We definitely considered a few others. I think one of the the sort of limitations of this is it becomes there becomes less and less data with all the inputs as we put more inputs in. So, you know, one of the candidate ones for for instance was was total IgE levels, but its performance alone is not very good and and, and that has been documented elsewhere. So uh, we felt that, that was a less useful marker. There are some other markers which probably have not even been described yet that I think look at sort of the inverse question is are there markers of non eosinophilic? inflammation, mm-hmm. and those are potential candidates, too, down the road. I think the limitation here was that we just 
our data set is, is finite Got uh, it. to look at. And as we add more and more input, there becomes less and less complete data. And then Got it. imputing is, is probably not as desirable. Got it. Well, great. So what is the future for other studies going forward? I think the future is, one, to apply it across multiple institutions. Mm-hmm. That you know, This is definitely a limitation for this. It's unique to our patient. Right, because uh, the urinary LTE for right, yeah. Uh, the other thing too is is I, I think to do this now that we're looking and saying, hey, this is maybe a useful approach, is to apply this to all our patients who come in and say, hey, before surgery, we're going to get these markers and use that to train additional data. That would be, I think, a more complete data set. Uh, it would be more generalizable. The, the patient profile would be more generalizable if we were to take that approach in the future. And then the, the last thing that we could we could add, I think, is something you were mentioning, is there are probably other candidate biomarkers which uh, could be added to a more complex model uh, in the future. Well, excellent. Well, good luck to you guys and to you. A nice manuscript and paper was a, I learned a, a lot uh, picking this. I, I tend to pick ones that are challenging to me, and this one was very difficult. <laughs> a lot of learning on my part. So, congratulations. It was great talking to you, and I look forward to some of the future studies that you alluded to. And, uh, of course, be safe and hope to talk to you again in the future. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Amber. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.